Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. James Bernazzani was a schoolteacher finishing up his master's degree at Harvard University. In 1983, the U.S. Marine Corps barracks in Beirut, Lebanon was bombed, killing 241 U.S. military personnel. A close friend of his, who was a Marine Corps captain, was one of the last bodies to be pulled from the rubble. At that moment, James Bernazzani decided that he wanted to join the FBI and fight terrorism. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, former FBI Special Agent Bernazzani discusses his 23 years in the FBI, fighting terrorism within the U.S. and overseas. My name is James Bernazzani. I was a special agent in the FBI, serving both within this country and overseas, fighting terrorists for 23 years, 10 months. I graduated with a master's out of Harvard University. I was a school teacher, and I got a master's degree and I taught overseas. I taught Mexico City and I taught in London, and I wanted to get back into the international school program, but be the director of the school. And when I was at Harvard, I played ice hockey. I played at a high level of uh, university ice hockey. On the team was a guy named Mike Haskell. He was a Marine, a sergeant, and he wanted to become an officer in the Marine, but he didn't have a degree. So we attended my school, and we played ice hockey together. Very close friends. Then in 1983, he went back in the Corps, apparently, and he became a captain. And uh, he was one of the last bodies pulled out of the Beirut Marine Corps barracks bombing. And so I called a buddy of mine who used to watch me play ice hockey. He was an FBI agent. And I said, I want to get in the bureau and fight these guys. Here's Bella. Sure enough. I graduated Harvard on May 7th, and I find myself at Quantico, the FBI Academy, on June 18th, 1984. My father was a heavy machine gun in World War II. I'm in the driveway, getting ready to pull out to drive down to Quantico. And he's mowing the lawn, the front lawn, and he walks up to me. He says, hey. I said, yeah, Dad. He goes, uh, do you know what FBI means? I said, yeah, federal, smart ass. Federal Bureau of Investigation. He goes, yeah, that's true to the general public. What I mean for an FBI agent, do you know what FBI means? It's the first time I hear this. I says, uh, what that? He goes, fidelity, bravery, integrity. He goes, you know what fidelity is? I said, yeah, Dad. You know what integrity is? I said, uh, yeah, Dad. He goes, you know what bravery is? I said, yeah, courage. He says, well, he says, bravery is nothing more than understanding your fear and overcoming it. And I took that to the bank. That was one of my linchpins, so to speak, with what I was doing. There's some tremendous talent from all walks of life in the FBI. When I was at Quantico, everybody thinks it's ex-cops. No. When I was at Quantico, I was a school teacher and a hockey player. Next to me was a fighter pilot 
And on the other side of him was a dance choreographer from Broadway. But we all excelled in our particular disciplines. Basically, Quantico made us FBI agents, taught us the FBI way. When you go to Quantico, it's basically three regiments. One is academic, and it's no different, more difficult than a master's degree program. One is physical. you got to be in shape. And the third one is the wild card, firearms. When I went to Quantico, I had never, never shot a gun in my life. But I was a pretty good athlete, and they taught me the bureau way to shoot. And uh, when I came out, I was an excellent shot. Uh, you have to carry a firearm, and you have to be willing to use deadly force under two circumstances. One, your life's in danger, or two, the lives of innocent third parties are in danger. I was assigned to the New Orleans Division of the FBI, and they had a national security squad, Squad 7. And they were all seasoned vets, and I'm a rookie. So I, I go into the office of the special agent in charge. There was only one TV in the office, and that was the SAC's office. And the SAC back then was like, God. And so I just walk into the office, and he's sitting there. And I said, hey, boss, you're going to watch the BC game? He says, yeah. He says, come on in. The first time I meet him, we sit down, we watch the game, and we became friends. And he says, where are you right now? I says, well, everybody breaks in on the, the uh, applicant squad because you go around and learn how to pull out your credentials and talk to people. Background investigations, basically. So he says, what do you want to do in the bureau? I says, I want to fight terrorists. The next day, he assigns me to squad seven. So I worked international terrorism in New Orleans, Louisiana, believe it or not, for seven years. Then I got transferred to Washington, D.C., and I was in the old CT1. CT means counterterrorism, the CT1 squad. And that was dealing with bad guys within this country. CT2 was the extraterritorial guys, and that's where I wanted to go. And eventually made a pitch to the special agent in charge at that time. And sure enough, the next day, I was on CT2, the only FBI extraterritorial squad in the FBI at that time. There's many now. That time, was only like 12 of us. And we divided up the world. And I get the luck of the draw in North Africa. Gaddafi was still alive, the Libyans. And they had knocked the plane off Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. And they had a, another attack uh, against a French airliner, UTA 772 which crashed in Benjamin Chad and took off from Brazzaville, Congo. And I had that ticket. And so I, I operated quite a bit overseas. Everybody's surprised. They think, we, we didn't know. We thought the FBI was domestic within the United States. Just, no, we have an overseas presence. We have extraterritorial jurisdiction. And as long as three factors are met. One, American citizens are killed. Two, significant U.S. property, like an embassy building of an airliner, is destroyed. And three, the host government has to invite us in to help. We're not covert, we're overt. My true name, the fact that I was an FBI agent, the bad guys knew it. And uh, it wasn't like it became a target as much as they were trying to figure me out. And I was trying to figure them out. And uh, it worked out pretty well. No, I was not covert at all. 
the government knew I was in town because of the, the factors, the extraterritorial factors that I was talking about. They invited us in. There was an expectation with clarity and transparency that you would work with the host government services that had their own national security concerns. And um, I, I worked with some great, great guys over there, men and women. And uh, it was, you know, we were people of kindred spirit. Because even though we spoke a different language and had a different upbringing, we both understood one thing. Terrorism is abhorrent. It kills the innocent. And these people were like-minded and together would go after them. I worked World Trade Center 1, Ramsey Yosef and the guys. World Trade Center 2, Bin Laden. Oklahoma City, McVeigh and Nichols. The Amir bombing in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, UTA 772 in the Congo. So I did a lot of work in the Congo, a lot of work in a place called Benin, uh, work in N'Djamena, Central African Republic, which butts up uh, to uh, the southern border of, of Libya at that time. Probably the hairiest one was in the Congo. In the United States, we can recall what's known as backup. And, you know, you can get a very quick response, you know, either state, local or other federal agents. They're right there. Very, very brave, very people. Overseas, I was in their neighborhood. They had the backup capability. And I was there with, the, you know, the onesies and twosies because I didn't speak. Uh, I speak Spanish, but I didn't speak. Like in the Congo, you needed to speak French. It was, uh, they almost got me. Let me put it that way. One of the most valuable sources of intelligence, because intelligence drives operations. And you have to understand the breadth and scope of the threat picture, what you're dealing with, are the recruitment of human beings. And so uh, I was very good at recruiting. I don't know why, but I just had some great human sources. Part of my job was to approach them by myself. Hopefully I spoke English. And uh, recruit them, but it's known as a recruitment in place. It's not like a defector. And everybody knows the bad guys know this guy's going going to the good side, and they change their methodology, their sources and methods accordingly. The recruitment in place is a guy covertly secret cooperating with us, giving us that real time intelligence, but still in place in the organization, the bad guy organization. Those are real tough to get. I was pretty good at it. We wear two hats, uh, an intelligence outfit and a law enforcement outfit. And we're very, very good at it. When you look at an organization, it's basically five characteristics. Leadership, membership, finances, communication, and assets. Assets being what do they have to use? Is it going to be a truck bomb or is it going to be a rifle? And everything in between. Once you identify one of those characteristics, you get inside of that organization and you identify the other four and then you understand the breadth and scope of the threat picture that you're dealing with and like i said the fbi does that very very well hezbollah was big into cocaine bank fraud and embezzlement illegal arms movement sale and movement a lot of white collar crime tell you the truth non-violent crime to support 
you know, fill that finance piece of the five characteristics of mobilization. Because terrorist operations, it costs money. When I'd come home, this is how the conversation would go. How was your day? I said, good. What did you do? Did my job. That was about the extent of the conversation. Because I couldn't divulge. Because, you know, FBI agents all have to qualify for a top-secret clearance. And that top-secret clearance, you cannot talk to your spouse about what you're doing. So you really got to dance around it. One time, I went into uh, a bad guy area, and uh, my wife goes, how long do you think you're going to be gone? I said, it's not two weeks, probably. I was gone seven weeks, and I couldn't communicate with her. And so, you know, when I get back home, she thinks I'm dead. And I just basically, you know, showed back up seven weeks later, and uh, she, she put up with it. She understood. You know, the whole family network for FBI agents is very, very uh, important. You have two families when you're an FBI agent. You have your personal family and you have the FBI family. And it's a balancing act because you got to take care of both of them. And uh, we do it very, very well. Most of my operational work were in my younger years. And then uh, as I aged in the Bureau and you know received a series of promotions, I still did some operational work, but not a lot. It was more like managing the young bucks, leading the young bucks relative to what I used to do. And my value wasn't like I was a smart guy or anything. It was I had experience and I was still around. And so I would teach them sources and methods, techniques, and uh, they carried them out. And like I said, there was one hell of a cadre of people, Americans doing the right thing. And so uh, that was basically it. Since my retirement, I teach at Tulane University, School of Professional Advancement at the master's degree level in a program called the School of Professional Advancement, SOPA. And within that, they have national security classes and I teach the kind of general class. If you go online, fbi.gov, is uh, the application process. Fill out the application. Do not lie and do not boast. Grass tax, tell the truth. Because you will go through a rigorous background investigation, which I agree with. Uh, because we have to make sure, because our adversaries should have tried to put their people into the FBI Academy, usually as linguists. That's why we have the polygraph. That's why we're polygraph. And like I say, the polygraph is they're not going to ask you personal questions about your lifestyle. The whole idea of the polygraph is to find out if some other adversary puts you up to fill out the application. Are you, in fact, a sleeper? You get in the bureau. You don't do nothing for six, eight, ten years. You perform with the mission of the bureau. And then you're activated. And uh, those are the toughest ones. And uh, like I said, the polygraph uh, uh, meets it out pretty well. But uh, it has happened before. I'm sure it's going to happen again. It's, it's tr- 
tried and true. I guess that, that's a, that's a term. But uh, that's it. We got to be real, real careful. It was fulfilling. It was meaningful. It produced positive results for the general public, and it supported the United States Constitution. If you get it, it's going to be the best job in God's creation. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Thanks for listening.